0: Welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. I'm Eilish Hart, the senior news editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. For the past nine weeks, our team has been entirely focused on covering Moscow's all-out war against Ukraine and its consequences in Russia. For this week's show, I wanted to get a better understanding of what civilian life is like in some of the most war-torn areas of Ukraine. To begin, I sat down with Maria Avdeva the research director at the European Expert Association, a Ukrainian think tank focused on disinformation and information security. Maria has remained in Kharkiv throughout the war, working tirelessly to document the widespread destruction Russia has inflicted on the city's civilian areas. When I asked Maria what made her stay in Kharkiv and do this work, she explained that she sees it as an extension of her role as a disinformation researcher.
1: I have been researching Russian disinformation since 2014. And I saw that Russian media, were, uh, state media and propaganda media, which is one and the same, were preparing uh, grounds for this uh, new aggressive war. And uh, when it started on the 24th of February, uh, I saw that another wave of disinformation was coming through uh, Russian uh, media, and they were planning initially to make it like a blitzkrieg to get control over major uh, Ukrainian cities uh, in the first two, three days. And they started immediately post messages that they have got control or are about to get control over Kharkiv, Kiev, other Ukrainian big cities. And my colleagues and friends started uh, calling me and asking if I already see Russian tanks on the streets of Kharkiv or our Russian soldiers are already here, which never happened. And I decided that it is necessary to stay and show that Kharkiv will not surrender, that it is fighting, that the defenders of the city are holding very firmly. And the second reason was when I saw that the war crimes committed by Russian troops here in my home city, that they are uh, targeting and shelling residential areas, schools, nurseries, uh, civil infrastructure. Uh, So uh, being in the city and documenting this and showing the world what is happening I think that that very important and uh, I saw my mission and see today as uh, to provide uh, information to the world about the situation in the city so that it will allow Ukraine to get more international support and more international help. And the third reason is for like for all those people who stay in the city and it is what unites us is that this is our home and we don't want to leave don't want to become refugees because these are uh, aggressors and occupiers
0: who came here and they shall go home. They must go home. Kharkiv has been under, you know, very heavy bombardment and a lot of people have left the city, but some civilians, including yourself, have chosen to stay. What is life like for civilians still living in Kharkiv right now?
1: Kharkiv is the second largest city of Ukraine, and before the war, one and a half million people were living here. And uh, the living here in Kharkiv very much depends on, on the location. Uh, Russian troops are situated in the semicircle to the north and the east of the city, and it means the residential areas which are close. Uh, to the positions of the Russian troops, for example, in Saltivka, the last line of buildings will be as close as two kilometers from the uh, Russian positions are very heavily shelled all the time. And uh, Saltivka was the, the biggest uh, residential area in Ukraine, up to 500,000 people were living there. And now it's completely devastated. Uh, some areas are just completely destroyed and deserted so no people are living there at all at other areas in the city there are still people and the life is uh, uh, more or less normal how it might be normal in a war zone but still people have access to the water they have electricity heating there are some shops open, some pharmacies, so it depends on on the district inside the city, and the, the most critical situation are in the areas which i I name so the residential areas close to the uh, to the outskirts of Kharkiv, where people live without water uh, without electricity, so, so they basically live in in the basements or in the metro stations or sometimes in some kind of uh, shelters and the volunteers bring them help and the situation there is really critical
0: so is it primarily volunteers who are keeping the city running and providing humanitarian aid to civilians right now or is there also local government involvement are there you know international organizations that have access to civilians in Kharkiv it, it again depends a lot on uh, on where in the city it happens
1: so the city council does a lot and the local government, uh, because in terms of the receiving large amounts of humanitarian aid and distributing it to the uh, to the large amounts of people. So in the areas that are not as heavily shelled uh, as others, there will be places where people will receive daily humanitarian aid and they're queuing to get this aid every day and exactly these uh, centers were also shelled several times and the people were killed but still this work continues and this uh, this help is distributed and international help is coming mostly through these uh, centers that are run by the government whereas uh, there are people in the uh, residential areas that are now um, heavily destroyed, uh, they still live there. And to these areas, these are volunteers who mostly bring this help. So there are several volunteer centers in Kharkiv. They will collect the information about where people live, what they need, uh, and they will, on their own private cars, bring help to these people. And uh, this will be mostly elderly people, Or, for example, mothers with children which need additional help and uh, especially elderly in apartment buildings because the elevators are not working in the beginning of the war. And it means if someone lives on the higher floor, uh, it's very difficult just to get out of the apartment building, go somewhere, get food, get up. So for some people, it's impossible and they are stuck in their apartments. And it's only volunteers who daily bring them some food, some medicines and uh, provide them this help and uh, help them to go through, uh, through this uh, conflict because uh, otherwise I don't know how they would be able to survive.
0: So you mentioned that many of Kharkiv's remaining residents are cut off from electricity, which, of course, means that they're not you know, really able to get up-to-date information about what's happening in the country. How does this affect people's perception of, of the war? There is no communication with them
1: initially because in these areas, uh, even if they would have electricity, the network is uh, very low, so you, you, can, you are not able to make calls uh, most of the time. And uh, they don't get any information. They, they, what they get is only from what volunteers will tell them. Uh, and uh, sometimes these people, especially, for example, in metro stations, are very traumatized because they are living there underground for two months already. And they, got, uh, they do not understand the whole picture of what is happening. And they are afraid to go out which is normal, but then they live in this no underground world with uh, getting information, for example, from telegram channels and uh, don't uh, completely understand what is happening. And that's why it's very necessary to uh, provide them uh, with current information. And here, uh, what the Ukrainian government is doing is, is there are some great initiatives, for example, like Office of the President or the President Zelensky himself will do very short uh, updates every day, really quick videos, very short videos where he will say about what has happened during the day and what are the outcomes and the same with the... Kharkiv uh, uh, city governor, uh, uh, which will also will give these updates, and the, the, they will be posted on Telegram and on Viber, the platforms that are uh, popular among the people here, and so they will be able to to see that and understand better how the situation is developed. That there is no reason to panic, so they understand the, what are the risks and how they should behave.
0: So this problem about a lack of information is something that's happening in in cities and towns across the country where, you know, electricity has been cut off, or even more so in areas that are under Russian occupation still. Are there disinformation or propaganda narratives coming from Russia that you feel are Gaining ground in Ukraine? I don't think that Russian
1: propaganda has uh, any basis now in Ukraine because uh, Ukrainians have already grown a very big resistance to it since uh, 2014. And uh, a lot of uh, international civic society uh, initiatives, government initiatives were aimed at that because uh, we knew very well that in 2014 this was Russian propaganda that made possible the occupation of Crimea and the uh, uh, occupation of Donbass. Russian propaganda is mainly aimed at the population of Russia itself because here people are not buying that, because no one will buy you know, these uh, uh, lies about Ukrainian forces shelling our own homes, or that how they would say that in Bucha, where this massacre happened, these were all uh, actors. Because people here see with their own eyes who is killing civilians and uh, what the, the Russian troops are doing. So-
0: My second guest, Ukrainian journalist and Public Interest Journalism Lab co-founder, Natalia Humenyuk, has been reporting from all over Ukraine during the war, publishing dispatches from towns and cities in the north and south, and even venturing into the Donbass. I started our conversation by asking her about the mood among civilians in Ukraine's capital, Kyiv.
2: It's hard to say that the life is getting back to normal. It's definitely still abnormal. Um, But uh, people are coming back, um, more or less, I would say, en masse. Those who don't have opportunity or don't have really reason to stay elsewhere are trying to get back, both to Kyiv, but also to the suburbs, uh, as Butcher, Irpin, and a lot of other towns uh, are basically Kyiv suburbs there is a feeling of this sad victory people understood that Kiev is uh, defended you know it's not thanks to Putin's mercy the Ukrainian army saved it but the price was high uh, and the people in uh, villages around paid this price and it's very hard to separate that from Kyiv because many residents of uh, the Ukrainian capital basically lived outside of the town. It's their suburb. It's their, you know, countryside houses, the villages close to them. Um, so it's really Kyivites who suffered. Uh, that's one thing. But there is still the understanding that the attacks would be still there, concern that the situation would escalate closer to the 9th of May of the victory day uh, in the Second World War, which Russia likes to use as a symbolic date for doing all kinds of things. Um, so, when I was saying that many people are coming back, I mean, there are still quite a few who think, like, let's better skip May and, like, understand what was going on. Because the situation at the moment is quite, it, it's still insecure. However, the uh, city has adjusted. The curfew is longer. It's after 10 p.m. So <clears throat> this allows people to come back to the work. Uh, the, you know, some businesses are coming back. Uh, but it's not really like with COVID when somebody can decide and say, like, please come back. So it's kind of readjusting
0: the life and operation with those who are there. One of the things that really struck me when I was reading your reporting from across the country and outside of Kiev, was the way that local leaders and civilian volunteers have really stepped up to keep smaller towns and villages running, even, you know, while they're under attack. Could you talk a bit about your experience reporting from some of these places that are less well-known to an international audience? Interesting enough that
2: uh, why this war is very different from the 2014, I mean, apart from the scale and horrors and atrocities uh, that Russia does to Ukraine. We talked back then that there are volunteers in Ukraine who help the army, who help the internally displaced, uh, and do a lot of incredible things. Now I won't be able even separate that. So it's not really that there are volunteers who do something what government doesn't do. It's really the whole society together. So really anywhere across the country, that would be Oktyrka in Sumer region, or that would be Severodonetsk in the Donbas, or Mikolaiv in the South, or Chernihiv, or anywhere. There would be the local authorities working together with the volunteers. And they would really do what's possible from them um, for instance, to make possible that the electricity works, that the water supply is there. At the same time, it's also important when the local business is involved and both local and national business. By this, I mean people were, were, let's say, surprised. How come that the Russians are not targeting Ukrainian communication? The problem is not that they aren't targeting. Ukrainians are fixing that. They are fixing the communication, they're fixing the railroads, they're fixing on the everyday basis under the shelling, you know, or in incredible terms of very fast already after the occupation, the power grids, the water pipes and everything necessary. And there would be this communication between, you know, the rescue team and the local authority and the mayor and the governor, but also the local doctor and maybe people who are retired uh, but are still capable to do something. So, for instance, a former policeman would come or, you know, somebody who has some authority in the town or connection, uh, they would come together. So it's really now a bit different thing. It's not like the volunteers trying just to do the job, the government don't deliver. It's really like people working together to make the life of the population possible in the impossible environment.
0: Russia has declared that the second stage of its invasion will aim to establish full control over southern Ukraine and the Donbass. You've reported from both of these areas in recent weeks. What is the humanitarian situation like in these areas now as they're sort of bracing for this offensive?
2: Russia more or less announced and started the build up in the Donbass in mid of March. Interesting enough, when we were in Chernihiv. Uh, in one of the villages close to Russian and uh, Belarusian border, there was the man who told that they, actually the soldiers there, the Russian soldiers, while they were retreating, they said, we go into the Donbass. And it was marked on the wall of the uh, place they stayed. It was 24th of March. So it's really, you know, long-prepared assault. But uh, the situation is not I won't say even not very good. You know, a huge part of the Luhansk region uh, territorially is occupied. However, the major towns are not. And the fighting takes place all the time. And unfortunately, the Russian strategy has changed from what they were doing in the very early stage, which, which was quite arrogant, you know, like try to overtake towns very fast. Now they understand they cannot overtake the towns. So they really uses tactics of the scorched earth where they uh, use long-distance artillery and shell the town, destroy everything possible there, electricity, water supply, making it unlivable. So the people would leave and then they want to overtake it when there won't be anybody in Luhansk region, which under this situation, the front line is as long as 300 uh, miles. And that's where the shelling takes place and attacks, but because it's not one place, uh, I think that's very hard to grasp for the foreign reporters, for anybody, that the, the battle is there. I don't know, maybe something bigger would come, but what's happening, it's it's already very big. The government really called people to evacuate, so there are calls for the people to leave, but we are talking about the area uh, where Two and a half million people lived prior to 24th of February in the non-occupied territory. Majority of them have left, but still hundreds of Southern people stay. In case of the occupation, we would see the, the kind of greater Mariupol where the humanitarian aid won't be allowed to be delivered and the people won't be able to leave. So there is some rush in, in doing so. And I would, would already say that the towns like Severodonetsk are not really livable at the moment, so I, I would advise people to leave. The others are still okay, and it's quite a complicated choice to make. In terms of Kherson region, but also Zaporizhia region, which is in the south, we are very worried if they are occupied. There are reasons to believe that, you know, the things which were happening in Bucha and elsewhere are happening there now. We know that there are a lot of people abducted, there are people missing and there are searches against the people and there are plans to create this sham referendums, which would be, you know, absolutely a a fantasy if you really speak about the real world, what referendum means it won't be even anything like in 2014 in the Crimea I mean that was already you know a stage thing but here like we obviously seen you know like how people protested and they are still there and so people do still demonstrate the, the fact that they don't accept this occupation but unfortunately it really doesn't uh, matter you know uh, they won't even you know, like, wait for any foreign reporter, anybody to show and to prove something. It's enough for them to tell there was some referendum or something. The humanitarian situation is bad because it's already impossible to deliver humanitarian aid there, and it's dangerous for the people to leave. So there are constantly negotiated green corridors. It's a big struggle, but people do not feel safe to leave the area, they're afraid that they would be shot while crossing the checkpoint. There were people trying to leave the areas using like a small roads, but there were also the news that some of them were shot. So it's really, those people are really kept as hostages in quite a large region of Ukraine. Yet what I strongly also think that, the initial aim of Kremlin to overtake the southern Ukraine and to create, let's say, the ground corridor up to Moldova. I don't think it's really workable because still, despite they keep her son, which they are able to keep because they are, you know, supplying the goods from the occupied Crimea, they are still far, far away from you know, overtaking Nikolaev and Odessa, which is uh, firmly under the Ukrainian control.
0: In Ukrainian towns where Russian occupying forces have retreated, there have been remarkable efforts to clear away the wreckage and debris left behind and carry out repairs to civilian infrastructure. Maria Avdeva told me that this is also the case in Kharkiv, despite the ongoing attacks.
1: Yes, it's happening and that strikes me, uh, these efforts of the city mayor and the city council and the uh, workers who do that because they actually do that risking their own lives. And uh, uh, now I see the tulips being planted uh, in the streets, in the city center, you know, in front of the buildings that are completely destroyed. So they do it on purpose and the mayor himself says that this is the sign that life in the in the city continues, and this uh, the city is holding, and the streets must be clean, and the garbage must be uh, taken out, and in the parts where the electricity or heating or uh, water supply is broken, they try to get it back uh, as soon as possible, if it is possible at all. So yes, yeah, they're doing incredible work in that, and the uh, that makes people here feel very uh, much better and feel the hope that the moment will soon come when the life in the city will return to what it has been before but still still, the damage is really heavy and I think the number the last number the mayor gave is like from uh, generally in the city there are uh 8000 uh, uh, large story apartment buildings and from from that number uh more than 2000 was destroyed so that's uh, more than 25% of the building total
0: President Zelensky is already talking very often about how Ukraine will rebuild after the war. How important is this narrative about rebuilding for Ukrainians and for morale? That is very important,
1: especially for those people who lost their homes. I have talked to them a lot, uh, people who are living, for example, in metro, or there are some people, like, for example, doctors in the hospital which live there. Uh, because their homes are destroyed, because they were living in South and Now they don't have any place where to come back. And of course, for them, it is uh, necessary and so important to hear that the government, the state uh, will rebuild the city and there, there is a possibility for them to get their homes again, and uh, so they will be able to bring back their families because for, for for many people the situation is critical and they stay in the city in the metro stations or somewhere just because they don't have where to go and that's why they are looking forward to the possibility of, of this but it will be happening only when the war will uh, end because it's not possible to do in the war zone and that is the biggest issue, so that people are waiting um, for, for peace and uh, waiting when the this moment will come, and that is what everything what they are talking about, looking forward and speaking about the moment when when they will be able to get out of their shelters and get back to normal. it's not really the
2: narrative it's actually something which is happening because yeah and the european butcher are partially livable uh, but i think it's 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 really you know important for the people to see this future and also in quite a short term but just giving you a different example i have a cousin with whom i'm unfortunately like really not very much in touch to be honest and he called me, uh, you know, knowing that I'm a journalist, just to tell the story that he's in Kiev, he's an architect. And he was for some time in the territorial defense of his region, but honestly didn't find himself to be very helpful there. And after some time, you know, understood that, you know, he's an architect, so much things were, you know, destroyed. So he called to his you know, university mates, he's in the middle of his career, you know, in his, uh, around, in his 40s, and uh, found out that, you know, there are quite a lot of, like, thinking about that. And in fact, there is the, already the alliance of the architects who talk to the ministry, and they are creating quite a large and big, you know, plan of rebuilding Ukraine, speaking about the bridges, infrastructure. So it's there. I do think that what, is interesting about this, not like interesting, it's it's not, I, probably it would be not the right word, but the way, what is the narrative of, uh, you know, the government narrative, what 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 Zelensky says. This word, of course, it's about, you know, uh, sovereignty, independence, uh, rule of law, and the democracy. At the same time, at core and the heart of that is the fight for the, good life of the people you know beyond there is this theoretical and very important things ukraine fights for the right to choose the rule of law the human rights at the same time they really have a very practical meanings so for instance it's about the human life so it's about human security making people live in the secure places but it's also making the life of Ukrainians normal, despite what Russia wants to do. So they would have the roof, they would have the school to go, they would have the road to, to, to drive. That would be the bridge, there would be water and electricity. And it's equally important. So for, for the government and for anybody, it's not a theoretical war. It's an everyday battle, despite of this enormous threat and attack to really care about the people, care about citizens. So actually the local authorities, like they see their main task in this war, to care about citizens and rebuilding Ukraine. It's not something theoretically nice, you know, narrative, which of course is important. It's really a very practical thing. People in Chernihiv suffered and we want them to have their bridge back. We want them have the water back. We want that the people in Erpin can have the, you know, internet connection as soon as possible because they already suffered and they deserve to be treated the best. So apart from what they experience, they would get the best from their country.
0: After Russia launched its full-scale invasion, a lot of Ukrainian journalists had to essentially become war reporters overnight, but you're not one of them. You have extensive experience covering the war in the Donbass and reporting on security and human rights. So I wanted to ask, how is covering this war different? I reported
2: some other conflicts, and I think that there is a drastic difference from the war and the conflict. This is a really full-scale military assault. It's nothing that you discuss any peace-building efforts and negotiations, which often are connected to the security. It's really an imminent security of people. So this is the one thing. The second is this war, and it's not my speculation. I talk to the historians. I talk to a lot of people this war really could be connected just to the Second World War. It's very kinetic, it's very old-fashioned, but also from the notion, it's often considered that the wars, they are not always black and white. There is some gray zone. This is not the case. And it's easy for me to understand that, but I think especially when you're writing for international audience, but in general, you know, like, you just are not any longer used, that something could be that black and white, something could be that obvious, and that in this war, there is no any other way to pursue rather than to defend with the weapon. So this is a a really a kind of a different type of war. And I'm speaking about that not just as a Ukrainian citizen, and my country is under threat, um, my society, but also as somebody who covered and you know like learned you know what was happening in the Balkans, in all the like let's say regional conflicts or conflicts like in Northern Ireland or elsewhere or in Middle East. It's really a total war against the state with all possible old-fashioned ways of, uh, you know, overtaking the territory. And that's make it easier, to be honest, in a way, because there is no moral dilemma. It's so clear, you know, it's so clear what's going on. At the same time, you just really don't want to live in this, you know, on the pages of the history book. And it feels like that. As well as the scale is immense and you still feel that you're missing a huge part of it, that you can't serve all the people, that you can't tell. Even the slightest part of all the stories which are taking place in the country.
0: I know you've been doing a lot of interviews and you're being interviewed by a lot of international media. Is there something you wish more journalists would ask you about when you're being interviewed? Let
2: me put it this way. I don't think there are easy ways... To give the answers, and also speaking about the Ukrainian society, I should also explain that we are ourselves are learning ourselves at the moment. It's about this. It's about. It's not just about past. People show who they are at such a dire moment. So I, for instance, l- learn so much how moderate Ukrainians are. How human they are, how indeed pluralistic this country is, how freedom loving the country is, how the right to choose matters so much for average people, which me, a journalist from kia won't probably know that the right to choose would be important for you know a driver in odessa or a doctor in 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 sumer region that it's really at heart at what they are how multinational the country is because that's probably something which which amazes me the most because even here I, i saw the participation of the communities Would it be the Greek community in Odessa or the Jewish community in Dnipro or Armenians in uh, Zaporizhia who would still say we are Ukrainians, but we, we, you know, we could be Roma, but we are Ukrainians and we fight for this country, for our country, first of all. So I do think it's something to convey as well. I'm often asked today about the possible compromise, what people would accept. And I also think it's extremely important, especially if we speak about by the Western audience or Western reporters, I often hear this answer from Western politicians saying, you know, like we may be together with Ukraine on the same page at the same time we are democratic countries. So maybe our population won't like the growing gas prices after the sanctions. And at the same time, I also think that it's important to understand that, yes, Ukrainians are democratic and acceptance or non-acceptance of any agreement which might come, it's not really about the some people don't want to have it uh, or would won't accept something which the president would say. It's really not decided. People would understand if there is the guarantee for their security. If there won't be the guarantee for security... People won't understand it. So it's really, you know, like adult society, which would either trust the agreement if there is something to trust in there or won't trust. It's not about like a a small group of of, of people who don't want something. It's really the country. And today, what is also very interesting, we really didn't have this uh, reference in the nearest past, it's a war against democracy, which is quite unusual historically. So when today there are some calls, either to deliver a weapon or put some sanctions, I probably can really ensure this is something what is said by the elected functioning government. Our parliament is functioning now, it represents different parties, the government is functioning you know the army is accountable and we have the situation in which the president the parliament the civil society the business community and the army and deploy Ukrainian diplomats are saying more or less the same thing they're quite unanimous it's not because you know it just were yeah it's existential for ukraine but it's it probably means something. It should be treated like that. If everybody more or less think that there is one way to deal with this conflict among all the strata of the society in different towns, that could be respected and seen as, you know, a real democratic will of the country and the population. You know, Ukrainians told what they want. They show what they want. And I do think that the, the, the most interesting thing to really explain this story, that this is really the, the, the wheel uh, of the democratic society, as you know most, as it could be. The Naked Prophet is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we'll take whatever you can spare, of course. Thanks for listening and come back soon.